Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 86. Last week, I covered the altar of the burnt offering, found in the tabernacle's courtyard, but outside of the tent of meeting. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering the other altar, the altar of incense, and getting started on the priestly vestments, specifically the breastpiece. And with that, let's get started. The altar of incense is first mentioned in Exodus chapter 30. It's sometimes called the golden altar, and a few times the inner altar. And the reasons for these two names are about as straightforward as can be. It was made of gold and found inside the tent of meeting. In the Holy of Holies, in the same room as the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus describes it as having been made of acacia wood and covered in gold, like many of the pieces found in the tabernacle. It's described as essentially an upright square stand, one cubit wide, one cubit deep, and two cubits high, which makes its base a square 18 inches by 18 inches and 36 inches tall, a metric not quite half a meter square and just under a meter tall. Like so many of the pieces described in Exodus, to me at least, its size is underwhelming. And, also like many of these pieces, it had what are translated as horns on its top four corners, and a rim of solid gold around the top, not to forget rings of gold through which gold-covered acacia wood poles would pass so it could be carried without being touched by human hands. I'll get to why this is important in a later episode. This was the altar where incense was burned twice daily, once each at the end of the morning and evening sacrifices. The offering of incense was required to take place after the sacrifice, because only after the atonement, symbolized by the sacrifice, could communion with God take place. And it wasn't just any fire. The coals used on the altar were sourced directly from the altar of burnt offering. And remember, that outdoor, much larger piece, at least while stationary, had a perpetual fire. But, as the name suggests, it wasn't just coals, but also fragrant incense produced according to a specific formula that was burned. The formula relied on sweet spices, stacked, Anika, galbinum, pure frankincense, and seasoned with salt. Stacked is thought to be an extract of myrrh. Anika is an extract from a rose, and galbinum, a gum resin from a plant native to the region. The seasoning with salt was possibly for its preservative properties. And just in case you missed it, the altar was gold, and the incense contained frankincense and myrrh. Draw your own conclusions. Since the formula was given, nothing else was permitted. Outside of the Old Testament, the Talmud holds that the specific formulation was produced by the Avinus family, assumed to be Levites. Women from this family were not permitted to wear perfume, so they wouldn't be accused of misappropriating temple incense. And they closely guarded the exact secret recipe, So, the details not presented in the text, like the ratios of the ingredients. 
both Psalms in the 141st chapter and Revelation in both the 5th and 8th chapters hold that the smoke from the burning incense was symbolic of the prayer of the Israelites rising up to God. After the burning of incense, which was essentially an offering, the priest pronounced the priestly blessing upon the people. Leviticus chapter 4 also tells us that whenever certain sin offerings were brought, the coals from the incense that was lit that morning were pushed aside and the blood of the inner sin offering was sprinkled seven times on top of the golden altar. This blood was from the animals sacrificed on the altar of burnt offering. Once annually on Yom Kippur, the altar of incense was purified through a specific process that made the altar pure again. First, the high priest would sacrifice a bull and a goat, using the blood from each to purify the Holy of Holies. He would then mix the blood from the two animals together. He would take this mixture and wipe it on each of the four corners of the incense altar, starting with the northeast corner. Finally, he would sprinkle the mixed blood eight times on the altar, and on this day, only the high priest was allowed to make the incense offering. Other days, so less holy days, the task could be assigned to any priest. More on how that ties in with the birth of Jesus in a minute. And that was the altar found in the tent. Of course, like all of the other pieces found in the tabernacle, when Solomon built his temple, he would have a new altar of incense built. Surprisingly, unlike everything else covered so far, he didn't go overboard with this piece. About the only change noted is the use of cedar instead of acacia wood. It too would be covered with gold, and the dimensions were roughly the same as the original. It was this altar that is thought to be the same as the one referred to the prophet Ezekiel as the altar of wood. The rest of the history of the altar is also similar to the pieces already covered. After the end of the Babylonian exile, it was restored, only to be taken by the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes, and it would be restored by Judas Maccabeus, at least according to the book of 1 Maccabees. Fast forward to the New Testament, the part before the birth of Jesus, the very brief part. Luke wrote in his first chapter that Zechariah was at this altar when the angel appeared to him, the angel that foretold the birth of John the Baptist. And it would be this altar that would be in place when Jesus walked the same temple grounds. The next stop in the history of the altar is the destruction of the second temple at the hands of the Romans. The Arch of Titus, located in Rome, does not directly depict the capture of the altar as a spoil of war, but it does show the mortar and pestle thought to prepare the incense for the twice-daily offerings. And that's it for the two altars. Circling back to Exodus chapter 27, we're told of the hangings of the court of the tabernacle. These are very similar to everything covered in the tabernacle itself, so I'll just briefly touch on them. The text tells us that they were made of fine twisted linen. Think of them as large decorative cords, or maybe rope. On both the south and north sides of the court, the hangings were 100 cubits long, so 150 feet, or about 46 meters. On the west side, they were 50 cubits, 
so 75 feet are about 23 meters. In this case, the east side of the tabernacle was arranged differently. It was 50 cubits wide, and on each side there were 15 cubits of hangings. In between these hangings was a gate with a screen 20 cubits wide. And instead of covering all of the measurements, just know that as a general rule, a cubit is about 18 inches or just shy of half a meter. All of these hangings were held in place by silver hooks on silver banded pillars, so columns, with bronze bases. The section wraps up telling us that all of the utensils used in the tabernacle were made of bronze, but do recall that some translations refer to the metal as being brass, and the potential problem with that metal was covered in the last episode. And that's enough about the hangings of the tabernacle. Next in the narrative is a description of the oil used in the lamp. I covered this as part of the lampstand, the menorah, which gets us to chapter 28, which is completely consumed by the vestments for the priest, their clothing, the priestly uniform. From the chapter, beginning in verse 4, where God tells Moses what the priest should wear, And you shall speak to all who have ability, whom I have endowed with skill, that they are to make Aaron's vestments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the vestments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a checkered tunic, a turban, and a sash. When they make these sacred vestments for your brother Aaron and his sons to serve me as priest, they shall use gold, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and fine linen. End quote. From this, a few things should be coming into view, including that God's favorite colors are gold, blue, purple, and crimson. The curtains, the screen, the hangings of the court, and now the priest's vestments. The next part of the text provides more detail concerning each of these pieces. The order of the narrative has the ephod first, but I'm choosing to skip that piece and cover the priestly breast piece for no other reason than it makes the best use of time. On top of the ephod was the breastpiece, sometimes called by its full name, the breastpiece of judgment. According to the Talmud, the wearing of the breastpiece atoned for the sin of errors and judgment on the part of the Israelites. And there is a great deal of information concerning this part of the vestment. It, too, was made of gold, purple, blue, and crimson yarns, and these yarns were woven into two thick layers, really one layer folded over so that it formed a pouch. And the judgment name is thought to have been because the pouch held urim and thummim, stones that were, at times, used to determine God's will in a particular situation. From Exodus 28, in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall place the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the Israelites on his heart before the Lord continually. End quote. But 1 Samuel chapter 28 recorded that God's will couldn't always be determined with these stones. But I'm getting ahead of myself. According to Exodus, the breastpiece was attached to the ephod by gold chains, maybe cords, tied to the gold rings on the ephod's shoulder straps. 
It was also held in place by a blue ribbon tied to the gold rings at the belt of the ephod. So, gold cord at the top and blue ribbon at the bottom. It was a square, either a third of a cubit or a hand breadth, which were about the same size. Think 6 inches or 15 centimeters square. Once again, not very large. On it were four rows of gemstones. Each row had three separate stones, so 12 stones in total. Each stone was held in place by gold thread. And the text, when combined with outside sources, provides a lot of detail concerning these stones. Some enlightening, other parts confusing. Each one was a different precious stone, and each stone was inscribed with the name of one of the tribes, and the method they were inscribed with is worth a minute. According to rabbinic tradition, the engravings were produced by something yet to be identified, known in Hebrew as a shamir. According to Rashi, this was a small, rare creature which could cut through the toughest surfaces, other rabbinic scholars claim a shamir was a green stone stronger than iron. Legend has it that King Solomon wanted to possess the stone, but did not know where it could be found. So he sent a party looking for it. They turned up one, the size of a single barley corn. Despite its size, Solomon would use it instead of cutting tools when he built the temple. For storage, the shamir was said to have been wrapped in wool and stored in a lead container as any other container would burst and disintegrate when under the shamir's gaze. Eventually, when the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC, it was either lost or lost its potency. But back to the stones themselves. Unfortunately, the literal meaning of the Hebrew names for the minerals are less than clear, especially those found in the Masoretic text. The Greek names in the Septuagint are clearer, but since the text was originally in Hebrew, these may be less reliable. These are the trials and tribulations of being a historian relying on ancient writings. When I go through the stones and refer to the two source documents, it's these, the Masoretic and the Septuagint. So, from top to bottom and right to left, the stones. Wait, what? Right to left? Well, that is the direction Hebrew is read in, so I'm going with that. The first is Sardius, at least according to the King James. But in both source documents, is called Odom, which translates to the word red. It's thought to refer to sardonyx, which is a harder type of carnelium. Not surprisingly, both the New Revised Standard and the NIV call it carnelian. It's a brownish-red mineral, but the color can range from pale orange to intense, almost black color. One of the main reasons it's thought that Odom may have been sardonyx is that it's common in the region. It could also have been jasper, a silica stone from the region that can be found in many colors, including red, but also yellow, brown, or green, and very rarely, blue. The second stone was chrysolite. The Septuagint says it was topaz, but like brass, topaz may not have been known to the ancient Israelites. 
the Masoretic calls it pitta. Instead of topaz, it may have been peridot, a light green semi-precious stone found in the region. But both the New Revised and NIV suggest it may have been chrysolite, a shimmering translucent greenish-yellow mineral common to the region. One of the best sources for chrysolite is an island in the Red Sea that was controlled by the Egyptians. And remember that when the Israelites departed Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians, taking silver and gold and maybe precious jewels. According to the New Revised and the NIV, the last stone on the first row was emerald. The King James calls it carbuncle. According to the two documents, it was like a shimmering green stone, which means it could have been an emerald, but it could have also been any number of green stones. Emeralds dating back as far as the 20th century BC have been found in Egypt and in cities throughout the region. This predates the Exodus by many centuries, so it's certainly a possibility. If it wasn't emerald, it could have been beryl, which you'll sometimes see called heliodor. And an emerald is a type of beryl, as is aquamarine. There's also a theory that this stone could have been a form of agate, and you will occasionally see this in some translations of the Old Testament. Several translations and outside writings claim the stone was brilliant, like a lightning flash, and that's it for the first row, which of course leads to the second. The first stone on the second row is listed in the New Revised and the NIV as turquoise, which is a bluish green. Curiously, the King James lists this one as emerald. The Septuagint calls it anthrax, not the disease, but meaning coal, likely a stone as black as coal. Other sources, including the Latin Vulgate, Philo of Alexandria, and Josephus, say it was red. All of this leads to an inconclusive debate in classic rabbinical literature on whether it was red or greenish-blue. Who knows? The next stone in the NIV in the Revised is Lapis Lazuli, while the King James calls it Sapphire. But there's a problem with Sapphire. Before the Roman Empire, this stone was not known in the region. The name has been found in some Greek sources, but this is believed to have been a mistranslation from the source Hebrew. Lapis lazuli is a stone with a deep, ocean-blue color, which was sent as a gift to Akhenaten from Babylon. So, it would have not only been known to the Israelites, but likely available and valuable. Theophratus, an ancient Greek philosopher, wrote that the stone was dark and having the color of verdigris, as well as being speckled as of with gold. Of course, he wasn't writing specifically about the stone in the breastpiece, but about lapis lazuli. Verdigris is the greenish-blue color that copper, brass, and bronze turn as it ages. Think of the Statue of Liberty, patina, the same color as lapis lazuli. The last stone on the second row is different in all three of the translations. The New Revised Standard listed as moonstone, the NIV as emerald, and the King James as diamond. 
As for the emerald, do note that the NIV list last on on the first row is beryl, which, while it could be an emerald, could also have been a different colored variety of this stone. As for moonstone, that's a type of feldspar that has a pearly appearance, and the diamond, well, of all the stones it could have been, that likely needs the least explanation. The Masoretic uses a word that translates to hard, and a diamond certainly fits that description, being the hardest mineral found. But arguing against this is that the skill needed to cut diamonds was centuries away, as was the ability to carve a name into it. The word used in the Septuagint is the Greek word for onyx, but that stone had yet to be mined when the Israelites were wandering. There's even a debate over the color of the stone, anywhere from clear to honey-colored to white to blue. Obviously, this is one of the more mysterious stones in the breast piece. Now for the third row, halfway there. The first stone on the third row, in both of the source documents, the word used refers to place names. Curious. Several ancient sources think it was fossilized pine resin, amber. No word if an insect was found in it. Now for something a little more interesting. In ancient Greece, amber was thought to be solidified lynx urine. And a lynx is just a small wild cat. In the U.S., we call one of the members of the lynx family a bobcat. The NIV and the New Revised call it jazinth, which is not amber, but a reddish-orange form of zircon. The King James names it as licor, likely a place name too. All three translations name the middle stone on the third row as agate, and agate was common in the region in time. Agate is a form of silica and quartz that is found in a variety of colors ranging from an off-white to brown. It typically has a banded appearance. Several ancient writers proposed that the one in the breastpiece was darker, either gray or black, though one Judeo-Arabic translation of the Pentateuch claimed it was not agate, but instead obsidian. Like the last stone, all three translations named the final stone on the third row as amethyst. In that place and time, it was thought that amethyst protected the bearer from getting drunk. It is a purple form of the hard mineral quartz and was a common gem for the ancient Egyptians. Which gets me to the fourth and final row. The Masoretic calls the first stone Tarshish which may refer to the place where the stone was from, and a place called Tarshish is mentioned several times in the Old Testament, usually as a coastal city engaged in trade. Unfortunately, there is no agreed-upon place for this mysterious city, and this episode isn't about the location. Maybe I'll get to that in the future. The word in the Masoretic may be a corruption of Asher, since they are very similar in Hebrew. If so, it may refer to Assyrian flint. The Septuagint sometimes calls this stone anthrax, just like the stone two rows above. Not the same type of stone, but both likely black. Other times, it was called chrysolithus. In this case, chrysolithus is thought to mean a gold-colored stone, which some think may be a topaz. 
which is why the NIV calls it that. The New Revised and King James calls it a barrel. Overall, no real agreement on anything about this rock. The middle stone on the bottom row is named as onyx in all three translations. Finally, some agreement. Some. The Septuagint uses the word thought to mean onyx too, but the Masoretic uses a word that may mean barrel. Because of this, Jewish tradition generally leans towards the leek green barrel, though some think it could be malachite. The last stone, so the one on the bottom left, is jasper, in all three translations, which was one of the possibilities of a previous stone, the very first one. Keep in mind that jasper comes in many colors, and the first stone was thought to have been red, and this one, green. Other candidate stones are ruby, emerald, and hyacinth. A hyacinth is a zircon that is either yellow, orange, or red. Or it could have been an onyx. Of course. And those are the possible stones on the breastpiece, but not the only biblical reference. In the 21st chapter of Revelation, there is a description of the wall of New Jerusalem. In the New Revised Standard Version, it reads, the wall is built of jasper, while the city is pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth the twelfth amethyst, end quote. All reminiscent of the stones found on the breastpiece. So, beginning in the Mosaic Covenant to the second to the last chapter in the Christian Bible. This list also appears to be based on the Septuagint's version of the jewels in the breastplate, but only if the top half of the breastplate was rotated 180 degrees and the bottom half turned upside down which I'll admit is getting a bit complicated. There are less than a handful of differences, and they all depend on which translation of the Septuagint is used, along with which Bible translation. There is a little more. Many think that the stones can be categorized into four primary colors, red, green, yellow, and blue. Also, the stones can be grouped by appearance, so clear, opaque, and striped. Then something even more interesting, in a plug for a different podcast. Noted linguist John McWhorter does a podcast titled Lexicon Valley, and in one episode he covered the order in which cultures begin to name colors. Besides black and white, the first are usually red, green, yellow, and blue. The same as the colors on the breast piece. If you're inclined, give him a listen, but be forewarned. He sometimes uses strong language, but he is a linguist. And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll continue working through the priestly vestments. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, 
help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.